You're listening to audio from Church of the Incarnation. To donate to our ministry or find out more, please visit incarnationcfl.com. Isn't it nice to live in Florida in November? Yeah, not so much in August. No thanks. But November, come on. I mean, this is pretty great, isn't it? I'm wearing jackets and stuff. This is great. Um, just excited about what we're going to see in Scripture this morning. I don't, I don't ever get tired of talking about Jesus. And, and um, I, I just, he's like a diamond, right? The, the, the more the bright light of focus shines on him, the more, the more radiant and beautiful he becomes. Amen? And, and we're going to see that in Hebrews this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Hebrews. Or if you've got your bulletins, it's in your bulletin as well. Today uh, is the last Sunday of a fall teaching series on the book of Hebrews. And the title of the series is Jesus, a better hope and a steadfast anchor. And we're seeing the author of Hebrews put Jesus forward as a better hope and a more steadfast anchor for your heart than anything else. And I just hope that when you talk about me behind my back, you say things like this, Father Tom is a gospel broken record. He is all the time talking about the person and work of Jesus. Oh, please give me that gracious compliment. Yeah, Jesus freak. Yeah, take me back to the 90s. Um, I don't think there's anything more worthy of talking about than who Jesus is and what he did. And I know for sure that if that'll seep down into your heart, everything else in your life will work itself out. The the, the biggest question your heart's asking is, who am I and am I loved? And, And the answer is absolutely. In the person and work of Jesus, you are a beloved adopted son or daughter of the Most High God, and you're loved beyond anything you could ever imagine. And that primarily has nothing to do with you. That has everything to do with what God's done for you in Christ, and that changes everything. And that's a way to look at yourself in the world that is such a gracious gift. And we're just going to see more of that uh, in the book of Hebrews today. Um, we're going to see this beautiful picture of Jesus who makes us perfect before God. Okay, but the way this is described, uh, especially in the book of Hebrews here, chapter 10, is, is amidst the backdrop of the Old Testament Jewish temple system. And, and that makes a lot of sense to the original readers of Hebrews because they were Jewish. All right, so here's just, this is extra credit. This is a Bible tip for you at 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, if you're taking notes, write this down. Think about it. It's going to sound kind of offensive, but I think it's true. Uh, the Bible was not written to you. Like what? It wasn't. Uh, the book of Hebrews was not written to you, 21st century Ovidoans. Is that correct? Is that how we say that? All right. Uh, it w- who was it written to? It was written to the Hebrews. Um, this book was not written to you, but it was written for you. Okay, there's a major distinctive there. And what I'm trying to tell you is, if we're going to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through the book of Hebrews, then we've got to look over the shoulders of the people who first received it, the Hebrews. Right? We've got to ask the question, what would they be hearing through this book? What are they learning? Who were they? And why did this book matter to them? Because if we can understand what it meant to them then we can understand what it means to us, right? So the Bible's written for you, but not to you, all right? So we're just going to drive into uh, the author's depiction of who Jesus was amidst the background of the system of temple priests and sacrifice. You've got your bulletins. Let's just dive right in. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every high priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifice that can never take away sins. Okay, there's a contrast here, but when Christ come, and the whole point of chapter 4 through 10 of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is like the high priest, but far beyond them, much greater in an eternal sense, that all the high priesthood and temple system in the Old Testament was nothing but a shadow of the person of Jesus. You think about it that way. Here's Jesus, and here's the light of God, and he's shining a shadow on Jesus, and the shadow it casts is the temple system of priesthood and their priestly ministry in the Old Testament. And so everything that it was just simply represents the reality of who Jesus is. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us. Every, so he's saying every high priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. All right, here's what the book of Hebrews is telling us. Um, that your sin requires something to die. Your sin requires something to die. And, and that's a rule that God set up right way back at the beginning of the book of Scripture. If you, if you go all the way back to Genesis, chapter 1. I mean, we're in chapter 1 and 2 when God sets up really just one rule for the universe. Okay, I'm going to read it to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. God says to Adam and Eve, You see that tree? That tree is the knowledge of good and evil. And you may not eat of the fruit of that tree. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you what? You die. So God sets up one rule for the universe. You reject my way. You reject my rule. You reject my commandment. And there's really only one thing that happens. Death. Eternal death. Your sin requires death. And, and so the whole reason the Old Testament temple system was set up, please don't miss this. We've talked about this the past few weeks. Uh, it's just a so important for your understanding of the Old Testament. The whole reason the temple system was set up was to remind the Israelites that something had to die for their rejection of Yahweh. And if it wasn't the innocent death of another, it was going to be their death. The whole, the whole, I mean, that's not the way we think about the Old Testament. We think about the Old Testament like it's this angry God who set up these systems of rules and said, you better keep the rules or else, right? Do everything I ask you to do or else I'm going to smite you, right? And the whole temple system with the priesthood was simply there to just demonstrate the lavish grace of God who's willing to accept the sacrificial, perfect death of another so that you, sinful lawbreaker, can get out from underneath the one rule God set up for the universe, Sin equals death. And, and in the mercy and grace of God, he's willing, and I don't get this, this kind of blows my mind, but if you'll accept that Jesus is fully God, God's willing to kill himself instead of you. And I just think it's so frustrating that you and I, and I'm no different than you in this regard, wander around wondering what God thinks about us constantly. Right? Oh God, have I done enough? To earn your favor today, oh God, what do you think about me when I did this? I've asked forgiveness for this a hundred million times. How could you possibly forgive me now? Right? And the answer is real clear. Jesus, whom, whom for the joy, Hebrews 10 says this, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was in joy that Jesus goes to die for you and as you so that God can cover you with his perfection. It doesn't get any better than that at nine o'clock in the morning. 
Verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's over, finished, and done. And you skip down two verses of verse 14. Listen, look at this. For I love this. Oh, I wish we would just all believe it. For by a single offering, that's Jesus offering himself, right? So just like the priests go into the temple and they offer the blood of a lamb or the blood of a goat, all of that is just simply a shadow of Jesus walking into the very presence of God and offering his own blood. And look what it accomplishes. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has, oh, I wish you would believe this, perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the word sanctified means those who are made holy. Is that, do you see yourself that way? Like, do you see yourself as one who's been made holy? Like, well, Tom, I'm not, I'm not super holy. True, you're not, but you've been made holy. How? Through the, for the cleansing blood of Jesus shed for you. Do you see yourself as someone who's been perfected for all time? Because, I mean, if this were a Baptist church, uh, every Sunday I would invite you forward to ask forgiveness for your sins and get saved all over again. I'm, I'm joking. But some of you guys have been to churches that way, right? Like, every, oh, who feels like a sinner today? Come on down and ask the Lord to forgive you and get saved all over again. You get saved 100,000 times. And, and I'm not into that. Here's why. Because I want you to understand that you were saved one time. And, and that, that salvation you experience one time, in and through the personal work of Jesus, covers a whole lifetime of not understanding it, rejecting it, and rebelling against it. That's how powerful it is. Perfected for all time. Those who are sanctified. And then we get this passage from Jeremiah, verse 15. I just want you to see the point here. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying this, and I'm just going to skip the next uh, verse because the point is what comes after. For after saying this, he also adds, and this is the point that the author's trying to make, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I mean, are you willing to believe that through the cleansing, perfect work of Jesus for you, that, that God doesn't even remember the things that you've done that violate his standard of righteousness? That, you're so, that you are so covered in the perfection of Jesus that God doesn't even recall the many and myriad and regular violations of his righteous standard that he's asking of you? That just, you know, that, that's hard to believe. And, and if, you, if you ask somebody who's sort of, you know, uh, steeped in legalism, they will say, well, Tom, don't tell your church that. You'll be encouraging people to sin. Well, guys, go out and do whatever you want. God won't even remember. He's like some old man who can't remember stuff, right? And I just don't believe that for one minute. It will not encourage you to sin. You know what it'll do? It'll encourage you to worship. It, when, you, when you just regularly remind yourself of God's holy forgetfulness, that he's willing to just not even remember the things that you've done that offend him, it doesn't produce this desire to run out and do more of it. It just, it, for me at least, it's like, oh God, that, that you would really look at me that way? Well, I want to love you today. It produces a loving response that in some miraculous way drives you into righteousness like nothing else would. 
Certainly more than if I pointed my finger at you and said, you better, you better, you better, you better. What does that do? It just causes us all to run away. When we encounter a God who says, don't you understand how I look at you? Don't you understand who you are to me? Man, it just makes us want to run to that kind of God, doesn't it? Whew, I love that. All right, verse 19. The book shifts here. I love this. Therefore, there's this therefore we have to ask. What's the therefore, therefore? Right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yo, look at that Bible joke. Man, I'm going to laugh out of that one. Love it, okay? Um, so, so the author's going to say, look, if, if this is really true, then here's what it means. And he's using the temple system again. Now, you have to think about the temple. There was a holy place, and then there was a holy of holies. And God's very presence dwelt within the holy of holies, and no one could go in there or else they died. The high priest could only go once a year, and if you understand Jewish tradition, they would literally tie a rope onto the high priest's leg so that in case he died inside the Holy of Holies, they could drag him out and not die themselves going to get him. And, and this is what the author is going to say, that through the perfecting work of Jesus for you, God has ripped open the Holy of Holies, and now you, dirty rotten rascals, can run with confidence. Can you imagine? Run with confidence right into God's presence. I mean, nobody did that in the Old Testament. Verse 19, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Does anyone remember what the, the gospel tellers, Mark 15, tells us happened at Jesus' death? There was thunder and lightning and darkness, and then what happened? The temple curtain was ripped in two. The curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies. Somehow God miraculously ripped that open. To, as if to say that the, your access to my holy presence has been richly provided through the one-time sacrifice of my son. <clears throat> Verse 21, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the point, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, I've been thinking about this. The author's saying, look, if this is who you are, then what it should do is you should just run to God's presence constantly and run to him in confidence. And I'll just say this. The degree to which you know and understand and believe the gospel will prove itself out in how quickly you turn to the Lord in the midst of realizing your own brokenness. I mean, when, when you come to the end of yourself, you've yelled at your wife again, you cheated on your taxes, whatever it is, that stuff you don't want anyone to know about, right? How are you doing today, brother? Good, how are you? Oh, good, everybody's good. Everybody's always good in church. Have you noticed that? It's amazing, right? Um, but when, when you really face yourself and know who you are, how quickly will you run to the presence of Jesus? Or do you spend a couple weeks acting like God doesn't exist? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Right? And he's old, and eventually he'll forget about what you did, and then you can kind of just sort of ease your way back into his presence like everything's cool. Right? And, and what the author's saying is, if you understand what I've just said to you, then you just run with confidence right to his presence, even when you understand the worst of yourself. Wow. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience... And I've thought a lot about this week. What does that mean for your heart to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience? What's the evil in your conscience? Let me tell you what I think it is. 
It's those bankrupt thoughts about yourself that you're not truly loved. I think that's what the author's saying. That if you'll sprinkle your heart clean from those thoughts inside of you that barrage you constantly and saying, you wretch, you can't possibly be loved by this God. If, if you'll let your heart be sprinkled clean from that, how is it sprinkled clean? Through the blood of Jesus. You just run to the presence of Almighty God. Verse 23, so let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. All right, verse 24, so last thing I want to talk about here, and we're going to do it together. Look, there's a real element of church that happens here. Let us consider how to provoke one another towards love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. The last thing the author is going to say is, if you want to live into this, oh, please hear me. I'm preaching to the choir here because you guys are actually here this morning. <clears throat> if you want to live into who Jesus is and what he's done, the way you're going to experience it is in community. You're going to experience it as you put yourself in a body of believers who are going to push you towards that grace and kindness of Jesus. Let us stir one another up. Look at verse 24, right? Let us consider how to prod one another, pro poke one another, provoke one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. All right, I want us to make a couple more comments here about the importance of community. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this in a post-coronavirus church environment. Have you recognized the ways that coronavirus has changed church? Anyone besides me aware of this? Um, so, so we didn't have an online service before coronavirus. And, and what's really interesting about what's happened in our church is um, our membership has increased over the past year and a half, and our giving has increased, but our in-person attendance has decreased. And that is entirely normal. That's exactly what's happening in churches all over America, and I'll tell you why. The video. And we're going to keep doing that, by the way. We have, we, have, we have transitioned into a watershed moment where now church is on screens. And so our membership's increasing, our giving's increasing, and our attendance is decreasing. Here's why. Because people who used to come three times a month are now coming twice a month and watching that third Sunday at home on the couch. What's up, y'all? <laughs> <clears throat> And you know what? You know what? Here's, here's what you need to hear from me. That is entirely okay, normal. If you fight it, you're crazy. That's the culture we live in. We digest things through our phones, iPads, and TVs constantly. That's not changing. All right? Here's the only thing I want to say about it. As you engage with church that way, just realize that there's a difference between consuming content and engaging in community. There is. There's a difference between content and connection. And we're in a culture that's just used to consuming content. So as if, if you're at home engaging with worship online, or maybe you're listening to this in a podcast weeks from now, that's awesome. I'm so glad you're at home watching this online. Just know that there's a bulletin on our website, and I want to encourage you to download it. And when you get in front of the TV on Sunday morning, realize that I'm not going to just consume this. I'm going to connect with this. There's a God present here who wants my heart this morning. So I'm actually going gonna, gonna to force myself to dive into what's being said and done and connect my heart with a holy God who wants to connect with me. 
There's a difference between consumption and connection. And the last thing I want to say is this, that as in this post-coronavirus culture, I think one of the things that the Lord wants us to do, and I'm talking to y'all who are here watching, here in person, is, is to go after those who we know over the past year and a half have lost connection with the body of Christ. Like it's your role to go run after them. And to pro- this is what the author says in verse 24, to provoke them to not give up meeting together. All right? So let's figure out ways to do that, huh? And then let's pray. Thanks for listening. Would you like to connect with our church? Join us online or in person every week at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit incarnationcfl.com to learn more. Have a great week.